Welcome to the Whopper Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And coming up on today's show, I'm in conversation with Emma Smith. Well, what an absolute pleasure it is to be joined by Emma today. Jazz singer extraordinaire, born of Hertfordshire, educated of Watford, performed of great stages and beloved by the world. Hi. Hello. How's tricks? Cool. You know, well, as cool as they can be, getting through and sort of clinging on to the bits of normality and the few gigs that we've had over this strange and weird time. Yeah. Um, Is that, yeah, have you managed to keep sane then in lockdown? Have you been playing or, I mean... I wouldn't say sane. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never sane anyway. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I'm very, very lucky that I have, you know, in the sort of periods where we have been able to play to audiences, I have been doing that. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a roller coaster and you know like last week i was in dubai Hmm. doing some shows at the opera house out there representing ronnie scott's and we took my band and stuff and we played two shows to theaters and went out for dinner and it was all just completely normal apart from wearing a mask outside um and then sort of you know flying home and then being like oh okay cool i'll just be in my trackies for like the rest of my life until i'm allowed to do a gig again <laughs> yeah it's crazy i was reading a, a thing yesterday about dress and codes and what people are wearing and whatever it doesn't matter does it it's no. such a bizarre bizarre vibe um so I, i'm gonna ask you some questions emma yes please do has jazz always been in your blood i mean how did you get into it as a little one yeah jazz has been in my blood actually because i I was born into a family of musicians who did specialise in the kind of big band era. So my grandfather was the first one and he was from, well, he was from the East End originally, but my whole family came from Radlett um, when my granddad bought his first house. And Radlett's just near Watford, right? Mm-hmm, just down the road, yeah. Um, in between Watford and St Albans, I guess. My granddad was a trombone player who played with Frank Sinatra and... Oscar Peterson and John Dankworth and Shirley Bassey and um, the list really does go on. And he used to play wow. Ronnie Scott's actually with Ronnie Scott himself. And then my father's a trumpet player and a ranger and my mum's a sax player and, you know, the whole family are musicians. So with that being said, it wasn't my my mum and dad's wish for me to be a jazz musician. They actually wanted me to be a lawyer. And I think it's because they, you know, towards the sort of mid 80s and onwards, music moved into sort of technology world and they really struggled to make a living at some at some points being very flush and at some points being very broke so they wanted consistency for their children but yet both of us have ended up being jazz musicians as well <laughs> yeah so your siblings are a jazzer as well yeah my brother's a guitarist my cousin is a trumpet player and my other cousin's a guitarist um another trumpet player in the family on Oh, there's, pl- there's plenty of brass players. That's too many, if anything. <laughs> so this is always going to happen, but you're the only singer to date. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. I think that was um that that was something that actually motivated me in my education in music because the, my instrument was singing, but mm. it wasn't a given that I could just get away with being a singer, if you know what I mean. So it was very important for me to um get my chops together my my technique chops and my theory chops and my writing and my piano and all those kind of musiciany type things that potentially singers don't um feel an obligation to be invested in so that that really was um it wasn't even up for conversation when i when i started delving into this music i needed to understand it you know from from a musician's perspective 
So I don't, I'll get into that in a sec. You just reminded me. So um, a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking to Miles um, Ashton from Ronnie Scott's, right? Mm-hmm. And he was talking about having recorded Amy Winehouse for the first time, and she just rocked up to Nigel. Um, and I was asking about her technical ability and whatnot, and he said it just sort of came out just one of those people um mm-hmm. but i was trying to push him to say you know but technically she was on it as well that's not just magic right you you have to work at your craft and you have to understand what's happening otherwise you'll just be sort of floating around is is, is that right or i mean how did you feel i mean you must have discovered actually my voice sounds all right um that, that, i think that was the the sort of first step wasn't it of, of hearing it and being like oh i don't hate this I think there are some singers that are just incredibly natural Hmm. um, and that haven't necessarily had to work on their craft ever or maybe not until later in their career when they've come up against blocks, um, which is often the case with singers. Hmm. I I wouldn't say that I'm like a technical singer in the sense that, you know, I haven't really had vocal lessons as such, more like music lessons. But I don't think it's a a given, actually. And and I don't think Miles is wrong by saying that Amy was just a very natural singer. Right, right. Um, I don't think she had an awareness of like how to how to manipulate her diaphragm and and her breath to get particularly high notes or whatever. I reckon she just let it come out of her. She was and she was also very inspired by Billie Holiday, who was you know a notoriously natural singer that had never had any lessons. Yeah, no, I I had never appreciated that till I read her biography a, a few years ago. Um, it's mm. just one of those voices, right? And it and it's what comes out. The um, since I'm on this topic my mind is is ranging pop rock that world of singing verses mm-hmm. well it doesn't have to be verses but um on a different track uh i guess from jazz i hear your voice and i think that's a jazz voice but i know that you can sing other things as well the relationship between pop and jazz just say um is it as true as you know pop musicians envy the authenticity of the jazz singer or the jazz musician or the jazz musician envies the pay packet of the of the pop musician or do you just think hold on you just come and go in, in your singing or performing in whatever genre fits you it's a hard one because for many years um the motivation was to like to to get a hit or to to do some kind of have some kind of career in the pop world to enable me to at some point come back to my love for jazz yeah. and um and just have freedom to do that without any kind of financial issues or whatever. And um, and what I what I quickly realised, what well, I say quickly, it took me about three years of being in a pop record deal and having a pop manager and going to things like pop star boot camp where I would have to see a personal trainer seven days a week for an hour and I was put on um, eating regimes and oh god really it was yeah that and my true. music oh yeah yeah oh yeah very much so. Wow. Um, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily something that I couldn't handle because I'm I'm quite an ambitious girl and if I really want something I will go for it. But what I quickly realised is that it's my jazz singing and my improvising and my freedom within this kind of old-fashioned style music, jazz or whatever you want to call it, swing, that makes me unusual. And the minute I started trying to be a pop singer, I became generic. I was starting to look generic. I was starting to sing generic. My my songwriting and my creative process came from a place of necessity and fulfilling um, requirements that my label wanted me to do. Oh, we needed like a, a 120 up, up-tempo pop song that's, you know, really like positive and we need this, that and the other. And that's all cool, but 
you know, the minute you start prescribing an artist in such a, a detailed way, you lose what was amazing about them in the first place or what attracted you to them in the first place. And um, I kind of, I really did do it, Chris. I, I really had a go. And I'm not saying that I won't ever again in, in the future, but as soon as I've sort of come back to my jazz home and really, um, and really embraced myself within what sparks joy in music, which is jazz and swing and all of that good stuff. Um, I've started to really understand that I have a niche and that is more valuable than I've given credit to for my whole career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Sigon sister and all that. Um, and I'm glad you you have found, or not found, but you know your home is in jazz, but it allows you to go out but with confidence knowing it, you always come back and you're grounded, I reckon. Um, so, but you also, you're also one third, right? I, I think I'd written tripartite, which get, got me away from saying three way, but nevertheless, <laughs> you're one third of the Papini sisters. <laughs> how did that happen? And, uh, how does that sort of, that must fit somewhere between both worlds, right? Absolutely. You're, you're completely right. What's amazing about the Papini sisters and especially, uh, unfortunately for me, before I joined the band, they really had this kind of pop star moment, you know, where they were going on television all the time and they were back to back in press and they were singing with Michael Bublé although I have done records with him since but when they really you know they're being interviewed in Vogue and in papers and all this stuff and what made them successful is they had a really clear niche we're doing a, a 1930s 40s vintage inspired stylistically um, Andrew Sisters kind of concept but with like pop tunes you know it, they were actually the original postmodern jukebox concept right and and um what's his face in postmodern jukebox has, has said that you know many times so it's quite interesting but that that's what was amazing about that kind of rise to fame for the papini sisters is that it was it was so niche and it really was not your average kind of little mix pop band right exactly um, and they they really hit at a time when the vintage um resurgence was happening I got asked to join the band in 2012 and it was my first sort of big gig. I was actually still at college. I was in my third year of college. I had one more year left at the right, academy. Right. What's that, Royal yeah. Academy? The Royal Academy yeah, of Music yeah. in, in Baker Street, yeah, where I went on the jazz course there and did four years undergrad. Um, they called me and I went and sang with them. It wasn't so much like an it wasn't so much like an audition. It was more like, come and have a sing with us. We'll read through some bits and bobs, you know, and, and see how your voice fits in and ha see how you fit in. And I'm still doing it to this day. So, wow, like eight years later. Amazing, And I've, right? I've travelled the world with the Papini sisters. I've sung with legends like Michael Bublé and, and Seal and Cindy Lauper. And, oh, wow. You know, we've been on amazing TV shows. I, I've seen parts of the planet that I never would have if I hadn't have been taken there through doing this band so I'm incredibly grateful um I'm incredibly grateful for the experiences and the lessons that I've learned through doing such a already established band I, I was so lucky to to sort of walk in and, and get taken you know taken into the fold that way yeah no it's amazing just if watch some of the uh, Papini sisters on YouTube if you haven't seen them live and you just get this really great uh connection between the three of you and mm. it doesn't matter I mean, you sometimes you don't see the audience but it really i don't think would matter right if you're playing to one person or ten thousand, you <laughs> seem exactly the same and all, all having a laugh and just you know sort of getting off on each other's sort of vibe it's cool yeah we're really authentic on stage and um it's what it's what we're like backstage too and i think the fans 
the diehards that have been with us for well they've been going 15 years they really invest in our in our personalities in our individual quirks that uh, you know we then ha feel like we have permission to actually expose and be vulnerable in that way on stage and it does make for a fantastic show yeah definitely awesome so you've just mentioned going to all sorts of places uh, all over the world and whatnot stages you have been what what are, what are one or two that stand out for you thought god i never thought i'd stand and sing here or who knew there was a stage here to sing on whatever <laughs> um I'm, maybe I'm just saying this because it's the freshest in my mind, but I've had the honour of playing at the Dubai Opera House two years in a row now. Wow, and it God. is one of the most dramatic buildings I've ever been in. It's extraordinary. Um, is it big, and, right? I mean, I, oh, I know nothing huge. about it. And let's assume listeners know nothing about it either. Describe yeah, it's, it. <laughs> it's thousands and thousands of people that sell. It sells out every time. You know, we're there under the Roddy Scott's banner. And, you know, I'm about to sing them a show of, everything from Bessie Smith up to Mark Murphy. You know, we often right. do these kind of uh, experiential kind of chronological shows or introducing jazz giants or the story of Ronnie Scott or whatever. So there's a lot of a lot of lesser known British jazz musicians and singers that we pay homage to on that show too. And it's just this, the attitude and respect towards people um, that have spent years honing their craft, like yeah. what, what we do out there is it's very different to what we get in, if you don't mind me saying, in the UK a lot of the time, you know, because there, there isn't a plethora of, of fantastic artists, so it never becomes standard to have that kind of quality um, being put on and being showcased. So we always feel very, very honoured and um, held when we go to places like that. I've had the same experience in... In Korea, I, I played with the Papini sisters out there and we had the best time ever hmm. um, playing an outdoor theatre at, at the, the, the equivalent time of 2am in the UK after just flying in that morning. It was so weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. There's something beautiful about it that I, I, I often think if only... Maybe it's because we've got an embarrassment of riches in the UK or, 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 or whatnot, but... I think, you know, musicians that I hear should be treasured and fated and lauded. And I, and I guess we all have our heroes and things we're into and think, oh, why isn't everyone listening to it? But to hear then you go to a, an opera house with thousands of seats and they're just clapping and lapping it all up makes me think, good, you know? It's, you mm. should have that sort of recognition and, and those crowds. Mm. So you've been busy in lockdown, right? You have obviously managed to get abroad which is impressive and i think we all applaud you for that the <laughs> you you did a set it wasn't easy though chris we had to have covid tests i had to organize for seven musicians to get covid tests that all had to be negative within 48 hours before we flew the first flight got cancelled we had to re uh, schedule the flight we had to get work permits i had to get a new passport of one of the musicians it was absolutely intense to try and get us out there and the minute we got off that flight in dubai and we stepped on on the land i was like and now let's think about making music you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah. people don't quite um understand the level of logistics that go into something like that especially in covid times wow right <laughs> it was really a lot well that's, that's what i was probably quite interesting then because your track your new one that, that you've released um monogamy blues i think probably probably has brackets behind it might have been written as isolation blues right but you're you're not really seeing anyone are you and your and your life is sort of defined by 
these really isolating things and you know monogamy is one of them and i really heard it in the lyrics i was listening to it obviously before before we started chatting was that the inspiration or does this come from a deeper frustration of life oh i'm I, on general i'm really happy that you've read that um you've read that into the lyrics uh, i have to say it was actually written before i even heard the word corona <laughs> in any context other than a beer so <laughs> it was it was actually um it was inspired by the tune Making Whoopi, which I was the first thing I'd ever heard um, Ella Fitzgerald sing, uh, which talks about a marriage, you know, um, another bride, another June, another sunny honeymoon, another season, another reason for making whoopee. And it's all beautiful in the first chorus. And then by the end of the chorus, you know, they're, they're in court and the judge says, how much money have you got to the man? And he says, you're going to have to pay 6000 a year to her. And he says, I only make 5000 And then the judge concludes by saying, well, you better keep her. I think it's cheaper than making whoopee. Genius, so these huh? lyrics really inspired me because they're fun, but they're also pretty foreboding. Right. Um, and it's, a, it's definitely, as I'm growing up a little bit, some uh, you know concepts that get flung around and conversations that happen over glasses of wine about you know monogamy and social conditioning and all these kinds of things so it was an opportunity for me to really explore that and put it into a, a swing in blues <laughs> so that I could introduce it she's a worldie watch them fall like dominoes he's unworthy get in line Cause in time, out of gold you'll find Falling deeply Dancing on the tip of their toes Sweet and sickly They adore how they roar And they always want more I think it's really refreshing to hear, and I don't think it's wrong, and it's been a sort of, from a male perspective, I guess, that you often hear the frustrations in, you know, the songbook of, of time, that men are somehow frustrated yes. and whatnot. Yes. And actually, I had to listen to it twice to go, hold on, it's she. This is absolutely from your perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's really refreshing, mm. you know? It's like, why? There's obviously no difference between from, between men, women, or however you identify. Yeah. But that fact is that you don't hear too many songs from women uh, singing about their own, you know, feelings, let alone sexual. Yeah, and also when I sing Making Whippy Now, I flip the genders. So I sing it from the woman's perspective. Um, that Well, actually, I sing it from the man's perspective where he's going... I sit alone most every night. She doesn't phone me. She never writes. She says he's busy, but I say, is she? I think she's making whoopee. You know, so right. to spin it on its head in that way. Because why not? We've, we've got permission. Luckily, you know, we, I'm, I'm coming out and making music <clears throat> in, a, in a time and in a city um, and in an online forum where really anything goes and, and full, full vulnerability and authenticity is encouraged. So that's really where I'm trying to make music from. So it's really interesting to hear you uh, talk about your first introduction to Ella Fitzgerald through Making Whoopi, because it was my first introduction to hearing Michelle Pfeiffer sing uh, Making Whoopi, oh, <laughs> because yeah. of course she, she famously does it on the fabulous Baker uh, Brothers, which is a great, great film. Um, but I think yours is a little more salubrious jazz company than mine. But now having mentioned Ella, this is what I saw you do over the summer, uh, which was this fantastic tribute 
to to Ella that, that was streamed from Ronnie Scott's. Mm. How did that come about? And, you know, what was it like performing that again to probably an empty club? Yeah, there was about six people in the room um, at that show. So not entirely lucrative for the club, but they were so uh, generous and encouraging of local musicians to... Um, present shows and put on entertaining performances that would encourage people to stay um, engaged in jazz and also donate. So I was very, very lucky to do one of the early, you know, one of the earlier slots um, in that live streaming um, setup. And we just had the best time, like me and my trio. Um, we rehearsed for like three days beforehand. Jamie and I, who's my sort of right-hand man, Jamie Safir, who I work with a lot, um, and also happens to be my best friend, whose birthday is today. Happy birthday, darling. <laughs> right, and we should say he's he's doing the keys, right, on Monogamy Blues. That's right, Jamie's doing yeah, the keys yeah, on Monogamy yeah. Blues, and, and on we've got like a whole record that, that's coming out together. But more on that later. Anyway, Jamie cool. and I, you know, that that's the really amazing thing, actually, about my community is that... Um, I'm sorry, that we are genuinely best mates. Like, we genuinely hang out together all the time without music all the time. And there's been certain um, circles that I've I've worked in before or played in where we just haven't socialised. And I didn't know at the time, because I hadn't had the opposite, that, that, that I really craved that, the connection beyond the music, which then influences the music in just the most joyful and authentic way. And so when we got offered this um, Portrait of Ella show, or, or at least we got offered this live stream, we, we thought, oh, we're going to put together a show. What's going to be, um, A, what's going to engage an audience and B, what are we going to love to put together? You know, what's not boring? And we both agreed on it being Ella because there's so much, um, uh, there's so much amazing music, um, incredibly powerful lyrics and powerful songs. But also with Ella, there's like a, a technicality, like the chops the virtuosic scat singing. It's something that I will always be working to get to her level. So I'm never gonna feel like I can put a tick next to it. So it's always challenging. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And that so comes through in your your style and, and, and what you hear, that breezy, effortless move to the scat and back to the lyrics with, I guess if you're starting out as a, a jazz singer or even jazz instrumentalist, those improvisations, those moments you go off, they always sound a bit clunky you know like in a, in a film when they suddenly start singing you go oh my god it's a musical it's like that moment when it's like oh well now they're scatting but you at the for me it's when you don't notice it and i think that's where you're at and i think that's where obviously ella is at it's just part of that 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 musical offering and it just happens to be vocal mm. um yeah super cool sorry i called it uh port uh tribute to Ella and it's absolutely portrait no 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 it's not at all because yeah. it is it's my tribute to Ella and it's my my sort of sort of realization of my gratitude to her because she is just a never-ending pool of inspiration and challenge and education right, like right, right. when I was preparing for the portrait of Ella show I'd, I'd already learned the um the scat on how high the moon which is really long and quite challenging and I was going through all different versions because you know what was amazing about it, Chris, is that we had the time. Jamie and I are normally running around like blue ass flies. I, I'm in Singapore with Pepinis and I've got to get back and prep for a show. We've got like three hours rehearsal and then we do a thing and then we go straight. You know, it's like it's been like that. And my God, I'm grateful for that. And yet there was something so amazing about preparing for this portrait of Ella show is that we had the time. So Jamie and I really just enjoyed the process of picking the tunes and sat and let the set list marinate like what's going to feel like you know a, the right kind of 
process here and who, who sh- who's going to do a solo on that? Or maybe bass or maybe fours with drums. And, you know, then we were like, well, let's, if we're going to do that Ella song, let's listen to every version Ella ever did because she often repeated her tunes on live gigs. So yeah, I, yeah, got, yeah. I got introduced to some Ella stuff that I'd never heard before. Live gigs that almost sound like bootlegs online. That's such bad quality. But it was so worth spending the time and listening to it because just I genuinely feel like I had another education prepping for that show. Um, Amazing. Yeah. You, you, I'm going to forever remember the sort of marinade word you just used <laughs> about how you can just sort Marinating of let it percolate. In a or in, amazing, right? You have to so though can... because I find set lists are really important. You know, you can't just go from cheek to cheek a burning swinger to another burning swinger and then dive straight into a ballad you need to give a journey and a, and a, and a there needs to be a trajectory with set lists and I think they're much more important than they're given credit for and I never learned about it at college and perhaps I should set up a module set list marinating <laughs> I don't know what that sounds like <laughs> something, <laughs> so, there's something for it um right so I've, I've got a question that I've, I'm trying to ask people. Your, your top three albums of all time, they don't have to be like, oh my God, I've just listened to so many things over the years. They could be like your current top three albums, I guess. But if you could like imagine a, 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 taking just three records with you for, for the next sort of week, wh- which records would you take and why? I mean, I'm going to guess, but I might be wrong. One of them might be Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, I don't know, actually. Um, Ooh, I would definitely take Mel Torme with the Marty Page Decter, a record called Swings Shuba Alley. It's just... Right, it, we'll check it oh out. Oh my God. I, just, I don't know it. The way that it brings me joy. I know like every single like second trombone part and like third trumpet and oh, I'm just obsessed with it. It's amazing. Um, there's no piano or guitar on it. So it's just bass and then nine, um, sorry, bass and drums and then eight brass instruments. It's so cool. And, and saxes. Um, so I definitely take that. And you can tell you come from a family of brass players. Yeah. Oh, and saxes. Yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> oh, and saxes. Whoopsie. My mum's a sax player. God bless. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, Mel Torme for me. Okay, so Mel Torme's biggest influence was Ella Fitzgerald. And he like took that and then put it in a male voice. Loads of like intricate scatting. And also he happened to be a drummer. There's amazing duets of Mel Torme and like Buddy Rich on YouTube and stuff. And you're like, what? So that's when you're like, okay, we've got a legit like jazz musician singer here and there's an amazing video of Mel Torme and Ella Fitzgerald singing together a few times one in particular at the Grammy Awards and they sing a blues and like Mel's like beaming into Ella's face and just like sucking in all of her joy and her jazz and her swing and like he literally just sounds like a male version of her and it's really beautiful to watch like an amazing black woman who's raised the bar for jazz singing and then like a younger white male like just idolizing her it's it's a real switch of what the times kind of encouraged in social relationships between men and women and race and stuff and i just love watching it because i feel like it's very modern and and quite poignant yeah yeah well you can bank that that's in your that's in your three you've got space for Absolutely. two more Absolutely. um okay so i would choose um joe williams and the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra. I can't nice. remember what the record's called, but it's it's the one that goes. It's what the one that's got. That's all right. We can look it up. It's amazing. And put it in the notes. It's so killing, and it's got like tunes called like Evil Man Blues, and it's just so sassy and joyful and brilliant and New Yorky sounding. 
And then I'd probably choose today, although it would change, um, the West Side Story record that Oscar Peterson trio did. Because the arrangements are like so tight and neat and hip and amazing. And the blowing's really, really jazzy and beboppy, but yet it's kind of theatrical in its in its presentation. The, uh, that's good that we've had Oscar Peterson mentioned. Oh my I God. can never have enough Oscar Peterson. Oh, no, in my no, no. I'm literally so obsessed with Oscar Peterson. Ed and I are listening to Oscar Peterson like every day. It's, it never gets boring. I was um, listening, listening to Giles Peterson's uh, recent show on, on, on Radio 6, and uh, he was in an interview with Elton John, and I was appreciating just how deep Elton's jazz knowledge is. It's unbelievable. Really? But it's I need to hear that then. It's worth, it's worth listening to it. Um, but one of the things he was just saying, when he watched Oscar Peterson, he'd just sit there and laugh because it's just so unbelievable. You can't do anything else but I'm just going, ah, Oh, my ah, God, totally. You know, unbelievable, right? Um, so this may be a good time to introduce our house band. So... Our virtual house band uh, was chosen originally by Miles Ashton uh, on, a, on a previous version of this, right? So just so you know who's in our house band, okay. we've got Peter King, Mark Nightingale and Dizzy Gillespie up front. <laughs> so weird. And then we've got a back line. We've got Duke Ellington, uh-huh. Steve Gadd and Jacko Pastorius. <laughs> And then because he's and then because he's allowed a curveball, we've got Leanne Carroll uh, on vocals. But she, of course, she can also she's also good to cover the Duke on keys. Oh um, my god! Especially if he disappears for an ever frequent wee break because he's getting on. So oh, my so gift funny. my gift to you, Emma, yeah. is that you can review our house band okay. uh, as chosen not by Chris Newstead but by Miles Ashton, and you can change up to one of those people. So you've got. Ooh, that's brutal. You've got a seven-piece. I already band. know. I've already chosen. Okay, so who who are you swapping Steve out? Steve Gad by Hun. So it's not it's not your gig, Hun. Go on. Who are you bringing Jeff in? Jeff Hamilton. Ooh, tell us why. Because he's the most swinging drummer alive, and he's not going to need to go for a wee halfway through the gig. <laughs> it's done. Hey, I never said Steve Gad needed to go for a wee. Ah, uh, probably. <laughs> that was just Duke Ellington, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Gadd, if you're listening, we really apologise for any incontinence. I do love you, Steve your... Gadd, but when you came and did that masterclass at the academy, it was incredibly boring. <laughs> and this is what happens: <laughs> what goes around comes round. And Jez Hamilton is now on on Woo! drums. It's happened. I'm <laughs> delighted. So we're 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 running out of time, which is sad because I th- think we could talk all day. We probably but... could, Chris. We put well, you know, perhaps we will another time, yes. but I think that will move out of the realm of podcast <laughs> into lecture. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you've uh, been booked and kindly agreed to come and play at the Watford Jazz Junction six months from now, uh, and ever appreciative of the long lead, but also of your time. Um, you're going to be uh, headlining our, our first night. Oh my gosh, uh, that's of, very exciting. Uh, well, it is very exciting and the title of the gig is called Gifted and we've got um, heptets and quintets or whatever from National Youth Jazz Orchestra and Purcell School for Young Musicians where I know you are an alumnus of both um, of those actually then, my god oh yeah well you've been through, you've been through the ranks right you, yeah. you are you've graduated jazz school um, and then obviously you'll be doing a, a set after that as well to to take us up to the to the peak of jazz I'm just saying, what what can we expect from from that night? You, you can even talk about Nigel and Purcell with your life experience of what they do. <laughs> to be honest, everything that we've kind of covered in the last however long we've been talking is what you can expect. That that on stage kind of 
sparky chemistry between me and my trio and probably loads of laughter um some emotional roller coaster moments uh, a Ooh. couple of originals definitely previews of the record i mean we might actually even have the record by then um which will be it will be borderline premiere it certainly will be one of the first gigs that we've done um showcasing this new material which isn't necessarily new to your ears but it's new me singing it so some songs yeah, yeah. there from very very old shows that have been reworked and some classic jazz tunes such as um making whoopee and but not for me and we're going to give you definitely some heavy duty sprinkles of ella scats throughout the show it's going to be a very very anticipated not just for everyone coming hopefully but for us musicians because we will be thirsty and ready to give you some proper proper high energy swing and jazz oh, oh we cannot wait it just sounds amazing Emma. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so listen we're, we're at the end of we're at the end of time um I, I, from everyone on the Watford Jazz Junction uh, just thanks so much for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure to, to chat and well, just listen to your, your stories and, and joy for jazz right thank you so much it's a pleasure to be here well stay well see you in May if not before and uh, to everybody else thanks so much for listening bye bye fantasy slipping away fairy tailing if she saw what he thought she'd be straight the door if you knew what she'd do